Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this podcast with William Hess of PRC Macro. Our subject for this podcast is China's plan for the next five years. The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of the best independent research providers from around the world, both macro and micro, some sector specific, some country specific, many global. From an investment standpoint, perhaps the most difficult to understand and predict is the People's Republic of China. So I'm particularly pleased that we are joined today by William Hess, who, along with Song Gao, is one of the two co-CEOs and co-heads of research at PRC Macro, which is based in Beijing and New York. Before PRC Macro was established in 2012, William was president of China Monitor, a platform for China macroeconomic and industry forecasting and analysis. He is also a former director of sovereign and international public finance ratings with Standard & Poor's and a former general manager with Global Insight. William, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the PRC macro service and the way that you analyze what is happening in China and how that affects the rest of the world. Great. Thank you very much, David. And just as a brief intro to PRC Macro, uh, I should say that now I'm, I'm based in New York. We have other principals in the firm who are in Toronto and, and our, of course, our co-head Song Gao is in Beijing. We all used to be under the same roof uh, in Beijing. I was in Beijing for many years. Uh, and so now we're a bit dispersed, but we all used to be working together uh, in Beijing. And so during those those early years, um, you know, one of the, the underlying ideas behind PRC Macro was that there was a lot that was lost in translation where it comes to policy in China and getting an accurate read through of policy intent and the resource flows that were going to be put behind it. And then how do you interpret that and how do you read that through into how markets are pricing the China narrative? Um, So that was one of the the founding ideas behind the firm is to get a better gauge of of what policymakers are actually intending and then to make sure that, that again, that this is not lost in translation by the time that it shows up in a a Bloomberg headline or or a media story uh, here in the West. Uh, And so that's that's what we spend a lot of time on in our research is talking to not just policy makers, but people who are who are responsible for implementing these policies. And so that we hope that that gives us a better read on on expectations and, and maybe where, you know, pricing in various asset classes has has gone um, too much in, in one direction or the other. So, uh, William, what are you expecting to see in China's next five year plan for the period 2021 to 2025 when it is published in October? Sure. And this is an area where, you know, at this point in the cycle, uh, there's there's been some coverage of this in, in the, the Western financial media, but there's been a lot of very kind of detailed writing about this by policy advisors uh, in China. And so we, we know pretty much in advance what, what the, the document's going to look like. And there's always around these kinds of policy announcements, there's a lot of noise. And so one of the things that we try to do is to filter out that noise and really get to what are the policy signals. And policy signals to us means resource flows, uh, whether it's credit, whether it's fiscal subsidies, whatever it might be. Uh, and so when we're looking at the ahead to the next five-year plan, um, there are a few th- key themes that, that, that we draw out of this. Uh, and some of them are not new. Uh, some of them are very familiar to people who have been covering China, but, but I think we're going to get a new iteration of some old policy frameworks. 
And the, the first thing I would say is that reading the, the pol- documents by policy advisors is that urbanization and urban agglomerations or city clusters, however you want to call it, is going to be a very important feature of the next five-year plan. Now, this this is not uh, anything new. We've seen in, the story of China's urbanization has been a very important one for markets over the past, say, 15, 20 years. Uh, but I think we're set to be on uh, the, the start of a new iteration of, of urbanization in China, where policymakers are looking at, number one, how do they boost incomes for hundreds of millions of people uh, in the lower end of the income distribution and use that as a way to try to promote more sustainable uh, growth and, and development in China. Uh, so urbanization is a key way for them to do that. Uh, and so on the subject of uh, both urbanization and on improving um, you know, income levels and improving the income distribution, these are things that, that are not new, as I mentioned. Uh, but the, so the question then becomes, well, how, what are they going to do this time around that's different, that will be more effective than the previous efforts over the past decade? Um, and, and I would say there that that. Importantly, the political motivations and, and the kind of imperative to get this right um, now have, have become much stronger because the policymakers in Beijing are looking at what's happening in the U.S. and other large economies, and they see the effects of a shrinking middle class and a worsening distribution of income on the social side of things, and that's certainly an outcome they want to avoid. Uh, so I think the, the motivation to get this right is much stronger. So I think the focus on on income growth and on expanding the access to social services and making you know the economy in China more equitable is going to be a, a core feature of, of the five year plan. Um, <clears throat> now, this has some some pretty significant implications for how people interpret the China narrative because I think there's this growing sense that well China's over borrowed like many large economies they're overbuilt they don't have room to stimulate going forward. But as I mentioned, you know, policymakers are looking at at uh, distribution of income and looking at the structure of the economy, and, and they're seeing, uh, are, are identifying a group of say eight hundred to nine hundred million people who are, who are essentially living uh, in, in lower income, uh, who are part of lower income groups, uh, and so that's that's really an astounding number if you think about it. I mean, that's like close to three times the size of the United States. It's a couple of of EUs. Uh, so they're looking at a very large segment of the population which has contributed in, in a large way to China's success over the past couple of decades, but hasn't, hasn't really caught up in terms of, of income growth and their ability to spend. And so the idea that China doesn't have room to stimulate and invest and, and really get uh, some return on, on its borrowing and building, I think, is wrong. And so we're looking ahead to a five-year plan where there's going to be a lot of emphasis on redistribution. That's a key theme. It's, it's not a simple one. Redistribution in any context comes with consequences and frictions. But I think for policymakers in Beijing, they're looking at these structural deficiencies uh, as an opportunity and and looking at it as more room uh, to use some uh, old programs, hopefully more effectively, uh, to uh, stimulate the economy and produce the next generation of of growth. William, when it comes to urbanization policy, China has had, I think it's fair to say, a checkered history. And I wonder, do you feel that they've learned from past mistakes um, how important is urbanization going to be to the next five-year plan? And what will be the impact of urbanization on the property sector across China? Sure, it's a very important question. Um, so I think in terms of learning from policy mistakes, uh, you know, I, I guess I take a little bit of, of uh, a confidence from the degree of candor being used in, in discussions about what the real distribution of income looks like, uh, where the gains from growth and development over the years have or haven't been distributed well. Uh, and, and so there, um, 
I think you know policymakers, even though it's it's a very ideologically charged political environment in, in Beijing these days. I think where it comes to these policy questions, you know, we we've seen, uh, as I mentioned, you know, a greater degree of candor than you might expect given the the overall political atmospherics, uh, and so that's I think a cause for a little bit of optimism, uh, and so. You know, why might they get this right now, whereas in the past, um, you know, a lot of lip service and a lot of, you know, policy attention was paid to these issues, but the results were were less than than um, than uh, impressive. Uh, so, I, again, I would, here I would say that this is really an, an issue of, you know, regime survival and credibility uh, where it comes to being able to deliver, you know, a credible alternative to the Western growth model and make China continue to stand out as a source of growth and continued improvement for, for the global economy. And so I think the on various levels, the political imperatives are very strong to get these policies right. And so, as I, I think I implied a few minutes ago, you know, getting policy right or, or interpreting what policy really means, uh, you know, is, is essentially a question of show me the money, meaning that if policy doesn't have resource flows behind it, it's probably not going to work very well. And so that's what we've seen over the previous decade, where there's been a lot of attention paid to urbanization and improving access to social services, etc. But there really hasn't been a lot of policy dollars uh, behind it. And so that's something I think is set to change in the next five-year plan, uh, where uh, we, we think it uh, will be material to, you know, improving the outcomes. Now, where it comes to the property sector, this is one where we're likely to see a very large change over the next decade. Uh, whereas so far, you know, the property development in China has been mostly commercial. We think we're in the early stages of a, kind of a nationalization of, of property supply, meaning that looking ahead, the government's going to be much more interested in providing, you know, low-income uh, rental housing or housing for for sale than they are relying on private property developers to meet the you know the needs of urbanization. So uh, that doesn't mean that China's going to build less. Uh, on the contrary, we think they're going to start building a lot more policy housing. Uh, but over time, I think that means that the balance between policy housing and commercial housing will shift pretty dramatically. So uh, that, that favors certain kinds of developers over others. So if you're a developer building in the high end of the market, it's probably not going to be your best next 10 years. If you're someone who's in the middle market, who's looking at at uh, building kind of lower return, lower risk properties, that's a different equation. I think a better equation given the overall policy mix. So I think we're on the cusp of some pretty significant changes to uh, the, the supply of housing in China. It doesn't mean that we're going to get less. We're probably going to get more, but it means it's going to be more policy driven and uh, less uh, commercial. Do you expect the uh, Chinese government to introduce a new tax on property in the near future? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And then so uh, one term, a very loaded term I mentioned just a minute ago is a redistribution. And this is one that keeps popping up in a lot of policy documents uh, ahead of the fifth plenum uh, later in October and then uh, the next five-year plan. So redistribution in any context is always tricky. I think in, in, certainly in the Chinese context is also tricky as well. Uh, and so redistribution doesn't happen without some f new forms of taxation. I'll just put it that way. Um, on the income side, I think it's unlikely that we're, we're going to see major uh, new taxes on households. But what I do think will start to happen is inevitably we'll have to see taxes on on wealth, on assets, basically. And, and property, I think, will be a leading candidate. Now, property tax has been under discussion for um, many years now. I don't remember quite how many, but uh, it's always gotten to near to the point where they're ready to push it ahead and implement it. And then they delay it because of, of maybe because of a cyclical issue or some kind of other distraction. But I think we're, we're at the point where 
Um, you know, the fiscal situation generally from the bottom up in China is not great. Whatever they want to do, they need to find new sources of revenue. And so I think uh, if redistribution is going to be part of the political landscape, as I think it's, it clearly will be, uh, that means, you know, taxes on, on assets and taxes on wealth. And I think property is one where um, it's widely expected um, that, that that's going to be h- how um, policymakers proceed. Now, as they, they do with, with all of these kinds of new, new taxes, new fiscal initiatives, they kind of ease into it. So we're not going to go with a blanket property tax on everyone right away. I think we're likely to start um, at the, the higher end of the market where they're going to tax so-called luxury properties, basically big apartments and our second or third apartments. They're going to be subject to a property tax, whereas if it's your primary residence or let's say you're a retiree or someone who doesn't have a lot of current income, they're going to go easier on, on the property tax. So we're going to, they're going to ease into it, but I think it's definitely something that's coming. How do you read cyclical developments in China and what are the policy implications over the next year or so? Sure. You know, I think moving into the short term, we're, we're starting to get a little bit more constructive in terms of of uh, both the recovery to growth in the wake of COVID-19 and also what to expect in terms of the, the more natural economic cycle. Uh, so the story for post-COVID has been mostly about uh, credit. It hasn't been so much about fiscal policy, but uh, in the third quarter of this year and fourth quarter, we expect, you know, fiscal uh, policy overall that includes both direct fiscal spending and, and fiscal spending plus leverage uh, to start to kick in to boost headline rates of infrastructure investment growth um, and to provide a kind of a more credible uh, recovery um, story. And so that's something we, we saw a bit in the August data, but I think we're going to see continued improvement uh, during the remaining months of the year. Um, now, this is left to 2021 as a big question mark uh, in terms of how do you follow up this pretty massive increase to credit, uh, expanding deficits like the rest of the world. Uh, how do you follow that up in 2021 without seeing a bit of a fiscal cliff or a sharp uh, slowdown to the rate of credit growth? And, and how, do, how does the economy absorb that? So I think looking ahead to next year, I mean, uh, in terms of cyclical tailwinds, um, we think that by the end of this year, we're likely to see the beginning of, of a restocking cycle uh, where inventory levels have been high, they've been, been drawn down. So we expect that manufacturers and uh and uh, producers generally are going to start to restock uh, by the middle of next year. That should provide a bit of a cyclical tailwind to, to ease through this transition from, you know, really exceptional emergency stimulus for the economy and for both credit and fiscal policy towards something which is more part of the natural uh, economic cycle. Uh, that said, you know, realistically, China has been running very large augmented deficits for a long time, and that's not going to change. And so I think the equation is not going to change very much. That They're still going to be reliant on, on credit uh, and, and fiscal policy to provide a floor on growth, but they're also going to get a little bit of help from the cycle um, heading into 2021. But, but it's, it's a fair question that people are going to be asking about how do you follow up this really exceptional uh, year of, of growth support uh, without uh, seeing some kind of a sharp slowdown later, later on down the line. So what are your near-term expectations for the Ramumbi exchange rate, for the Chinese bond market, and for the Chinese stock market? 
Sure, and and so for the currency, this is this is uh, we're getting a, a typical cycle of of uh, very strong sentiment where it's generally been very bearish, but when it, it turns to a more bullish phase like we're in now, you start to see headlines from the investment banks. But going back a few months, I mean, it was pretty clear that that the central bank was looking to differentiate its monetary policy from the Fed, I mean, the Fed especially, and also from the ECB, uh, and that means emphasizing interest rate differentials. That means uh, Emphasizing that there's China is not running QE uh, anything anything close to what, what's happening in, in the U.S. or Europe or even in Japan, uh, and so that should be a basis for um, more positive sentiment towards the currency. So this this kind of bullish narrative about the currency has been building uh, for several months, and so we think it does have some legs, uh, in part because we're going to get policy continuity uh, from the PBOC uh, in the years ahead. Uh, and for, by the same token, we're likely to get policy continuity from the Fed based on their, their, their meeting this week. Um, you know, we're looking at a horizon of two to three years of interest rates at the level of, of where they are. And so that that gives uh, global investors, you know, a narrowing range of choices if they're looking for yield. And if you're looking for yield, you know, positive yield in, in, in uh in uh, major economy bonds, you know, RMB assets, I think, are taking on a bit of a, a different uh, look uh, for them. So you're looking at at uh, more uh, stable expectations for the currency. You're looking at, you know, yields on on long term government debt uh, over three percent, which is pretty exceptional globally right now. And so I think people are starting to look at at alternatives to U.S. dollar or European assets uh, in a different way. And so. We've seen sustained inflows in the China's bond market. Uh, we think that's likely to continue uh, as uh, RMB assets are included in more and more global indices. Uh, but also, you know, for for allocators, uh, you know, if you're look if you're looking at their bond allocation and and looking at a small uh, allocation to emerging markets, you know, I think right now China offers a, a good. Uh, a good alternative uh, where there still is actually some real yield to be had. Now, this is not going to be a tidal wave of, of flows into China, but it does point to a more sustained uh, more sustained inflows as global allocators rebalance, even if it's only a small part of their bond allocation. Um, the equities have been a bit a bit mixed. Uh, you know, at the same time that we've seen sustained inflows into the bond market, there's been you know, fl fun, flow of funds southbound out of China into Hong Kong uh, for the past couple of months. And so the equity market has always been a bit more volatile. But I think uh, in terms of the RMB assets uh, generally, uh, the bond market offers uh, kind of a more sustained, less volatile opportunity at this point. William, thank you for this most insightful glimpse into the service that's provided by PRC Macro. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail your analysis of China's growing role on the international stage at this crucial time for Sino-US relations. The Independent Research Forum is offering a one-month free trial to the PRC Macro Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with William Hess of PRC Macro. Mm -hmm.